Well, hello, my lovely fellow nerds. Happy Labor Day. It's been quite a while since I've said hello personally, so I thought that a proper update was in order before getting into today's opinion, Groff v. DeJoy. It's been quite an eventful summer, to say the least, here in the Getchell household. My husband and I and our three cats packed up our home in preparation for a long cross-country move back to Washington, D.C. At the same time, we ushered our daughter off to San Francisco for graduate school. However, at the 11th hour, fate would have it that we would be given the opportunity to stay in San Diego and with our baby girl, a short flight or a long drive away from San Diego, we took it. And so after packing everything up, we are now unpacking it all again, but very happy to be staying here in America's finest city. So that's what's been going on during my short opinion reading hiatus, that and also reading the Trump indictments together in several bonus episodes that I squeezed in over the past month. I hope that you all had a great summer, hopefully less eventful than mine was. It is hard to believe that it's already fall and it's time to get back into the swing of things for those of you on an academic calendar anyway. And for those of you who are excited for a new term of cases to be heard by the Supreme Court, the new term is set to begin, as always, on the first Monday in October, which falls on October 2nd this year, which is less than a month away. But before we even begin to think about that, I'd like to finish reading the dozen or so cases that I missed from last term before we kick off a new season here on What SCOTUS Wrote Us. Besides, if this term is anything like the last term, we won't be seeing any new decisions come our way until the new year anyway. I am planning on putting together a sneak peek episode to discuss what cases are ahead of us before that happens. As a side note, we have gained quite a few listeners over the summer, and I want to welcome you all to the podcast, whether you're an attorney, a student, or a citizen who wants to stay informed of what's going on in our third branch of our republic, or one of our international friends. Welcome, one and all. Feel free to reach out to request an opinion to be read on the show, provide feedback, or just to say hi at whatscotuswroteus.com. That's whatscotuswroteus.com. Okay, enough chit-chat. It's time to get to the reason that we are all here. Without further ado, I give you the opinion of the court in Groff v. DeJoy. Enjoy. Justice Alito delivered the opinion for a unanimous court. Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 requires employers to accommodate the religious practice of their employees unless doing so would impose an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Based on a line in this court's decision in Trans World Airlines, Inc. v. Hardison, 1977, many lower courts, including the Third Circuit below, have interpreted undue hardship to mean any effort or cost that is more than de minimis. In this case, however, both parties, the plaintiff petitioner Gerald Groff and the defendant respondent, the postmaster general, represented by the solicitor general, agree that the de minimis reading of Hardison is a mistake. 
With the benefit of thorough briefing and oral argument, we today clarify what Title VII requires. Part 1 Gerald Groff is an evangelical Christian who believes, for religious reasons, that Sunday should be devoted to worship and rest, not secular labor and the transportation of worldly goods. In 2012, Groff began his employment with the United States Postal Service, USPS, which has more than 600,000 employees. He became a rural carrier associate, a job that required him to assist regular carriers in the delivery of mail. When he took the position, it generally did not involve Sunday work. But within a few years, that changed. In 2013, USPS entered into an agreement with Amazon to begin facilitating Sunday deliveries. And in 2016, USPS signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the relevant union, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, that set out how Sunday and holiday parcel delivery would be handled. During a two-month peak season, each post office would use its own staff to deliver packages. At all other times, Sunday and holiday deliveries would be carried out by employees, including rural carrier associates like Groff, working from a regional hub. For Quarryville, Pennsylvania, where Groff was originally stationed, the regional hub was the Lancaster Annex. The memorandum specifies the order in which USPS employees are to be called on for Sunday work outside the peak season. First in line are each hub's assistant rural carriers, part-time employees who are assigned to the hub and cover only Sundays and holidays. Second are any volunteers from the geographic area who are assigned on a rotating basis. And third are all other carriers who are compelled to do the work on a rotating basis. Groff fell into this third category, and after the Memorandum of Understanding was adopted, he was told that he would be required to work on Sunday. He then sought and received a transfer to Holtwood, a small rural USPS station that had only seven employees and that, at the time, did not make Sunday deliveries. But in March 2017, Amazon deliveries began there as well. With Groff unwilling to work on Sundays, USPS made other arrangements. During the peak season, Sunday deliveries that would have otherwise been performed by Groff were carried out by the rest of the Holtwood staff, including the postmaster, whose job ordinarily does not involve delivering mail. During other months, Groff's Sunday assignments were redistributed to other carriers assigned to the regional hub. Throughout this time, Groff continued to receive progressive discipline for failing to work on Sundays. Finally, in January 2019, he resigned. A few months later, Groff sued under Title VII, asserting that USPS could have accommodated his Sunday Sabbath practice without undue hardship on the conduct of USPS's business. The district court granted summary judgment to USPS, and the Third Circuit affirmed. The panel majority felt that it was bound by the ruling in Hardison, 
which it construed to mean that requiring an employer to bear more than a de minimis cost to provide a religious accommodation is an undue hardship. Under circuit precedent, the panel observed, this was not a difficult threshold to pass, and it held that this low standard was met in this case. Exempting Groff from Sunday work, the panel found, had imposed on his co-workers, disrupted the workplace and workflow, and diminished employee morale. Judge Hardiman dissented, concluding that adverse effects on USPS employees in Lancaster or Holtwood did not alone suffice to show the needed hardship on the employer's business. We granted Groff's ensuing petition for a writ of certiorari. Part 2 Because this case presents our first opportunity in nearly 50 years to explain the contours of Hardison, we begin by recounting the legal backdrop to that case, including the development of the Title VII provision barring religious discrimination and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC's, regulations and guidance regarding that prohibition. We then summarize how the Hardison case progressed to final decision, and finally, we discuss how courts and the EEOC have understood its significance. This background helps to explain the clarifications we offer today. Section A Since its passage, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has made it unlawful for covered employers to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's religion. As originally enacted, Title VII did not spell out what it meant by discrimination because of religion, but shortly after the statute's passage, the EEOC interpreted that provision to mean that employers were sometimes required to accommodate the reasonable religious needs of employees. After some tinkering, the EEOC settled on a formulation that obligated employers to make reasonable accommodations to the religious needs of employees whenever that would not work an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Between 1968 and 1972, the EEOC elaborated on its understanding of undue hardship in a long line of decisions addressing a variety of policies. Those decisions addressed many accommodation issues that still arise frequently today, including the wearing of religious garb and time off from work to attend religious obligations. EEOC decisions did not settle the question of undue hardship. In 1970, the Sixth Circuit held, in a Sabbath case, that Title VII, as then written, did not require an employer to accede to or accommodate religious practice because that would raise grave establishment clause questions. See Dewey v. Reynolds Metals Company, 1971. This court granted certiorari, but then affirmed by an evenly divided vote. 
Responding to Dewey and another decision rejecting any duty to accommodate an employee's observance of the Sabbath, Congress amended Title VII in 1972. Tracking the EEOC's regulatory language, Congress provided that the term religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice, as well as belief unless an employer demonstrates that he is unable to reasonably accommodate to an employee's or prospective employee's religious observance or practice without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Section B. The Hardison case concerned a dispute that arose during the interval between the issuance of the EEOC's Undue Hardship Regulation and the 1972 Amendment to Title VII. In 1967, Larry Hardison was hired as a clerk at the stores department in the Kansas City base of Transworld Airlines, TWA. The stores department was responsible for providing parts needed to repair and maintain aircraft. See Hardison v. Transworld Airlines, 1974. It played an essential role and operated 24 hours per day, 365 days per year. After taking this job, Hardison underwent a religious conversion he began to observe the Sabbath day by absenting himself from work from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, and this conflicted with his work schedule. The problem was solved for a time when Hardison, who worked in Building 1, switched to the night shift, but it resurfaced when he sought and obtained a transfer to the day shift in Building 2 so that he could spend evenings with his wife. In that new building, he did not have enough seniority to avoid work during his Sabbath. Attempts at accommodation failed, and he was eventually discharged on grounds of insubordination. Hardison sued TWA and his union, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, IAM. The Eighth Circuit found that reasonable accommodations were available, and it rejected the defendant's Establishment Clause arguments. Both TWA and IAM then filed petitions for certiorari, with TWA's lead petition asking this court to decide whether the 1972 amendment of Title VII violated the Establishment Clause as applied in the decision below particularly insofar as that decision had approved an accommodation that allegedly overrode seniority rights granted by the relevant collective bargaining agreement. The court granted both petitions. When the court took that action, all counsel had good reason to expect that the Establishment Clause would figure prominently in the court's analysis. As noted above in June 1971, the court, by an equally divided vote, had affirmed the Sixth Circuit's decision in Dewey, which had heavily relied on Establishment Clause avoidance to reject the interpretation of Title VII set out in the EEOC's Reasonable Accommodation Guidelines. Just over three weeks later, the court had handed down its now-abrogated decision in Lemon v. Kurtzman, 1971, 
which adopted a test under which any law whose principal or primary effect was to advance religion was unconstitutional. Because it could be argued that granting a special accommodation to a religious practice had just such a purpose and effect, some thought that Lemon posed a serious problem for the 1972 amendment of Title VII. And shortly before review was granted in Hardison, the court had announced that the justices were evenly divided in a case that challenged the 1972 amendment as a violation of the Establishment Clause. See Parker Seal Company v. Cummins, 1976. Against this backdrop, both TWA and IAM challenged the constitutionality of requiring any accommodation for religious practice. The summary of argument in TWA's brief began with this categorical assertion. The religious accommodation requirement of Title VII violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Applying the three-part Lemon Test, TWA argued that any such accommodation has the primary purpose and effect of advancing religion and entails pervasive government entanglement in religious issues. The union's brief made a similar argument, but stressed the special status of seniority rights under Title VII. Despite the prominence of the Establishment Clause in the briefs submitted by the parties and their amici, constitutional concerns played no on-stage role in the court's opinion, which focused instead on seniority rights. The opinion stated that the principal issue on which TWA and the union came to this court was whether Title VII requires an employer and a union who have agreed on a seniority system to deprive senior employees of their seniority rights in order to accommodate a junior employee's religious practices. The court held that Title VII imposed no such requirement. This conclusion, the court found, was supported by the fact that seniority systems are afforded special treatment under Title VII itself. It noted that Title VII expressly provides special protection for bona fide seniority systems, and it cited precedent reading the statute to make clear that the routine application of a bona fide seniority system is not unlawful under Title VII. Invoking these authorities, the court found that the statute did not require an accommodation that involuntarily deprived employees of seniority rights. Applying this interpretation of Title VII and disagreeing with the Eighth Circuit's evaluation of the factual record, the court identified no way in which TWA, without violating seniority rights, could have feasibly accommodated Hardison's request for an exemption from work on his Sabbath. The court found that not enough co-workers were willing to take Hardison's shift voluntarily, that compelling them to do so would have violated their seniority rights, and that leaving the store's department shorthanded would have adversely affected its essential mission. The court also rejected two other options offered in Justice Marshall's dissent. One, 
paying other workers overtime wages to induce them to work on Saturdays and making up for that increased cost by requiring Hardison to work overtime for regular wages at other times, and two, forcing TWA to pay overtime for Saturday work for three months, after which, the dissent thought, Hardison could transfer back to the night shift in Building 1. The court dismissed both of these options as not feasible, but it provided no explanation for its evaluation of the first. In dissent, Justice Marshall suggested one possible reason, that the collective bargaining agreement might have disallowed Hardison's working overtime for regular wages, but the majority did not embrace that explanation. As for the second, the court disputed the dissent's conclusion that Hardison, if he moved back to Building 1, would have had enough seniority to choose to work the night shift. That latter disagreement was key. The dissent thought that Hardison could have resumed the night shift in Building 1 after just three months, and it therefore calculated that it would have cost TWA to pay other workers overtime wages on Saturdays for that finite period of time. According to that calculation, TWA's added expense for three months would have been $150, about $1,250 in 2022 dollars. But the court doubted that Hardison could have regained the seniority rights he had enjoyed in Building 1 prior to his transfer, and if that were true, TWA would have been required to pay other workers overtime for Saturday work indefinitely. Even under Justice Marshall's math, that would have worked out to $600 per year at the time, or roughly $5,000 per year today. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion. Next episode, we will pick up right where we left off this episode to read the second half of the opinion. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.